Hi everyone, welcome to Into the Wild. Before we get on to today's show, Nada and I would like to remind everyone that whilst Into the Wild is a super accessible show, we do occasionally let out the odd swear word. So if you're a young nerd, make sure you tell your parents that. And if you're someone that doesn't like swearing, then I'm sorry for all the shit, pit, fucks, and whacks. Hello. Hello. How you doing? That was very cockney. Well, it's because I'm talking to you and I can't help but mirror anyone, <laughs> anyone I'm with. <laughs> um, Hi, everybody. Welcome to Into the Wild. Welcome to the show. Hoofed. Feels like a long time since we did one of these. It has been. It's been a month, hasn't it? What, how has your month been? It's been wild. I've been, I have been into the wild. <laughs> have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where'd you go? I went to Spain. Are you going to tell everyone on the show about your so-called lynx story? I saw an Iberian lynx, everybody. I've been going to Spain birdwatching for like over 20 years and I've like I've never really made a massive effort, but I've gone to the region where they are mm. um, and where there is a conservation program to protect like a breeding program for them. And there's two places in Spain where there are Iberian lynx populations. For anyone that doesn't know, like it is a medium-sized cat um, with lovely spots and the most audacious ears mm. of any feline. I, I don't know, animal, maybe. That was a perfect oh, word, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, was... I was just about to say they've got the best ears in the world, but then I remembered elephants. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and, and Riley, my dog, thank you very much. <laughs> and of course, Riley, they, they surpass Riley. And it's only because... They have these little tufts. It's of the tufts fa- of hair, uh, isn't it? It's the tufts. So it's it acts as it, as like an ear extension. <laughs> that it gives them like an extra third of it's just so glam. They're so eighties, um, and they've got this short stubby tail, um, and it's very special. It was at, okay. Full disclosure: it was in one of the large breeding enclosures, uh, on this nature reserve in Doniana National Park. If anyone's ever been, uh, I shouldn't have gone there. But it was very quiet and I thought I would sneak over the fence and take a look. You know that I am a fence crosser. I just say, like, I love how you, you that's a bit of information you didn't need to add to this story. Okay. But you chose to do it. <laughs> you I chose did. to do it. Do you know what? I used every single bit of what I know about common sense and viewing wildlife, having looked at wildlife all my life. Mm. Um, and That's why you got the selfie it, it, with the lynx. Got to get the ears in. <laughs> yeah. Do it again. Smile, Smile this time. Smile. It's on portrait mode. I've got to get your face. Like, Tilly, shake, shake that steak. <laughs> I'm very happy that you saw an Iberian lynx. No, I did. But actually, even better than that. What? Even better, I saw a, um, an eagle owl. And oh, I, that again, is cool. another another species. And this was not in, a, in an enclosure. Um, we were climbing. Um, we were rock climbing and the sun was just going down. I was having a tantrum. Um <laughs> Uh, and I just this big thing flew over, and immediately bird bird watchers will know this feeling. You don't need to like look through your binoculars or anything. You immediately go eagle owl. Never seen it before, but I knew it was an eagle owl. And then um, I was like, ah, damn it, it's ninety nine percent an eagle owl. But without looking through my binoculars, cannot confirm. But I was like, it's flown off. Sod it. I'll come back tomorrow. But then after about fifteen minutes of hanging around and jumping around in excitement, I just heard this ooh, ooh. this really deep. Hoot, and I was like, that is not any other owl I know. That's an eagle owl. And then looked up and there it was perched. Oh, in a amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And then it flew across this. We were in a gorge. So sheer, sheer crags, rocks either side mm. of us. And it just flew across. 
absolutely magic. So I've been into the wild and um, I've, I've had a good month. Well, you've been doing that while a lot of us have been here in the rain looking at fungi, which I am not shitting on. <laughs> Because I love God, fungi. I hope not. No, no, yeah, and- <laughs> mycologists would go. <laughs> I mean, they say don't. They say don't pick them. <laughs> don't pick them. You can defecate on them. <laughs> I guess any kind of like wildlife family. I think I feel like fungi wouldn't mind. Out of everything, I feel like they'd be like, oh, I think they're. I'll there. grow out they'll of that out then. Of that. Thanks, thanks for the nutrition. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad you've had a lovely month. Uh-huh. Shall we? You've had this nice positive moment. Shall we give the nerds that are listening to some positive news as well should we go into nature news why don't we share let's, let's share. do let's it let's go right can i go first yeah i'd love you to okay nice quick one so Papua new guinea they today announced that 1.5 million hectares of new marine protected areas will come into place these new mpas uh more than triple the ocean protection in one of the most biodiverse rich countries in the world making major leap forward for the country and the planet on the road to achieving the global 30 by 30 target. Well done, Papua New Guinea. Yeah, nice. So let's just hope that it's actually implemented. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, No, sorry. Good news. Nadia brings the bad news. No, 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 you're absolutely right. But do you know what? I trust Papua New Guinea more than I do elsewhere. I feel like I absolutely trust other countries (laughs) more than... So, for example, I live in Scotland. Scotland has 40% of the seas around Scotland are also marine protected areas. Guess what? Doesn't make a blind bit of difference because they're still dredged and they're still fished. Um, so we do have a very horrible um, tradition. I don't know. We do have a lot of protected areas in the UK, but purely on paper alone. What actually yeah. happens is that a lot of them still have shit happening to them. And we, you know, our, our environmental enforcement bodies don't really have the guts or the resources or the whatever. Not the guts. I don't want to say that in case somebody's listening who works because I know it's incredibly political and complicated but i trust papua new guinea i think they're just gonna be like i don't also like to go in with my pessimistic uk mind on another country i'm like because i've never been to papua new guinea i've spoken to anyone from papua new guinea so i'm like i just have a feeling they're better than us eh? yeah and i think that's all i can go on (laughs) if anyone's listening from papua new guinea get in touch Get in touch. What are your marine areas like? I can imagine there is some sick oh, wildlife God. in those seas. Well, the most rich of the biodiverse country. Oh, come on. If anyone knows anyone from Papua New Guinea or knows anything about Papua New Guinea... Um, I actually... Okay, maybe you do have contacts. <laughs> I don't know. Putting it out there into the void. Okay, cool. Um, uh, that's, that's really exciting. I really do hope. My senses, I don't know about you, mm. and actually this next story is linked to this a little bit. Okay. Did I say linked or links? It's oh, linked. God, you bring up the links again. You've got to put a fiver in a Can't jar every time it. you bring up that links. Can't help it. I've started spraying myself with it. <laughs> I know that's a lie. It's just that my sense is that we're in we're in a bit a little bit of late stage capitalism. And my sense is that countries from the global south are getting a little bit fucking fed up and a little bit empowered to be like, you know. <laughs> we'll sort it out. <laughs> yeah, in it. So, okay, my news is... Mm that the EU agrees to ban exports of waste plastic to poorer countries. And so they've struck a deal to stop ships of waste plastic landing in ports of poorer countries, European lawmakers and member states. 
of which we aren't one, agrees on Friday to ban exports of plastic rubbish to countries outside the OECD by the middle of 2026. So this deal comes from diplomats meeting in Nairobi, Kenya, and to hammer out global treaty on plastic pollution. I think it's been one of those things that we've increasingly become aware of in the last mm-hmm. few years with that when we recycle, <laughs> doesn't really, tends not to go anywhere. Countries, yeah. um, we pay countries to take that plastic um, and then actually it is not recycled and a lot of it is burnt and actually we don't have like a closed loop system so it does end up in the oceans, not blaming any other countries at all that take our waste. Um, we I blame ourselves for not dealing with our own shit. So maybe it just speaks to a little bit more of that shift of like actually we can't keep shitting on poorer countries yeah. and if we do have plastic waste that is unmanageable in this country then maybe we should stop producing so much plastic waste or, or, yeah, yeah. or to do things differently. Yeah, because we know that we are the greatest polluters and we've got to do something about that. So that's nice to know that it's not being... It's not- and also the energy to ship it around, like to to ship your Coke bottles all the way around the world so it could just sit there. And I get mean, thrown in Lord. the ocean, exactly. And you know what? It's, it's not just it, the big part of shitting on other countries, but also like greenwashing our own people here to say like it's okay it's not all right you've made a very weird loophole to put it between a smoke screen <laughs> like yeah. it's you know it's like the it's just like you're being a magician in environmentalism yeah. do you know what i mean we are not going to put this in landfill in the uk uh, are you sure <laughs> where's it yeah. going then <laughs> you know i am cynical quite rightly and sometimes i do feel really bogged down but you know it's worth looking for little glimmers of hope what these news stories you know, what these shifts in policy aren't, aren't a panacea and it's not a quick fix, but they are, you know, I hear these little stories and it's like momentum and pointing towards potential change. It needs to happen quicker, obviously. But, but it's, nice to, know, it's so, nice to know it's happening. It's popping up. Yeah. Um, yeah, lovely. Well, there you go. Those are two nice bits of news for you all. Uh, shall we head into our main topic of the show? Let's go. What is it? We're gonna tell us about we'll it. We're telling about it now. <laughs> what is it? What is it? What are we talking about? <laughs> like a Victorian woman. What? What are you talking about? Why don't I do Cockney for the rest of the episode and you do Geordie? I promise you that I cannot do Geordie. I know. And I, I will offend too many people. I think I can do Cockney. Go on then. Say, let's, let's tell us we're going to go into the main topic of the show in Cockney. Oh, this is actually harder than it when you're on the spot, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. We're going to... No, no, let's, let's not, not do it. it. Right, okay. <laughs> well, nerds, we are revisiting a topic and this is something Nida and I decided to do and we're going to do into next year a few times throughout um, each season. Um, and it's just uh, revisiting human-wildlife conflict. And the reason there's a couple of reasons why. Um, the first one is because it is a huge topic and the issues, the problems, the conflicts, the species, um, the history, the cultures will change in every single country. Um, so there's always stuff to be learning on topic. The other thing is, to be honest, there's not many people reporting on this stuff, really. You get the odd kind of news article about it. You might get the, a specific industry report done on it, but there's not really much out there that are just talking about these stories happening. So we want to give a platform to a bit more of that. Um, So this episode is Human-Wildlife Conflict Revisited India Edition. So we're going to be focusing on the country of India. And my gosh, have I already learned some stuff about India, Nadu? I knew Mm. it was a big country. Didn't know how big it was. Any idea in the list? 
in the numbers? What? Ooh, the ranking? Into, out of the biggest... Of what, co- size of, about size of country? Yeah, where do you think it ranks on the list? It's in the top 10, I'll give you that. Oh, okay. What's bigger? China? You're not, are you going to list all other countries? <laughs> do you know what the thing is, though? I've been brought up with maps that have been made in the UK, which grossly over, like, that... That is it's true. It's not what I'm used to seeing. Don't base it on a map you've seen. <laughs> okay, so I'll just base it on that time I was in space. <laughs> but you know it's big. It's in the top ten. Okay, I'm going to go four. It's seventh. Oh. there's Yeah, but you've got Canada, America, Russia, and a few more. <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, I really wanted um, it to be bigger than America. Yeah, unfortunately it's not. But it is. You, you, you can fit the UK inside India 13 times, which I think is... It's a good way for us UK listeners to start thinking about countries a bit more. Sorry. Go on. No. How many times can you fit Wales in it and how many football pitches? Blue Wales or the country of Wales? I'd like to know, babe. That's amazing. Brilliant. Um, Big, 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 big country. 3.287 million square kilometres, seventh largest country. Um, Because of that, it's obviously incredibly rich in biodiversity but also in habitat so you've got everything from rainforest temperate forest grasslands mountains deserts wetlands it's and the species that they have in india is incredible they got 25 percent of all the planet's wild cats they've they hold seven to eight percent of the every recorded species on earth wow in one country is that's insane and protected areas now obviously we can't talk about india and and especially with human wildlife conflict, if we're not talking about colonialism as well. It's still got a very strong hangover, as our guest on today's show told me, of colonialism in the country, especially with its conservation practices there. Um, But they have protected areas, national parks, um, and India um, only actually has about 5% of their land mass covered in national parks. But wildlife doesn't stick to boundaries, as we know, and there are no fences in these national parks, meaning wildlife can and does move around and live and share space with people. People living rurally, for example, subsistence farmers, are most likely to come into contact. However, this can change depending on the region, as India has um, so much diverse habitats. So it's an exciting country to explore this kind of thing. But I would also say, when we talk about human-wildlife conflict, quite a lot of the time we go to southern Africa or an African nation, whereas India has way more conflict. They have both lions and tigers. They have leopards. They have wild boar. They have elephants. I'm not going to list them all because our guest on the show does go into some detail. But it's a big topic. Big topic in India. Yeah, I mean, of course it's going to be. I'm looking forward to this. So we've got a guest on today's show who featured on our first episode of the new season of Into the World called Rajiv Mathan. He works with communities in India. He works in legislation in India. He is the man you go to in India if you want to know something about human wildlife conflict, about cultures, about wildlife, about habitats. He is the man to go to. And on the first episode when we're talking about conservation, Raj gave us his perspective and his knowledge on what is con- what conservation is like in India. And it's a very fortress style, very kick people out, protect, 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 which has been for a while. So we spoke to Raj about what the main species are in India that create human wildlife conflict and how this changes around the country. We also asked him what the leading causes of human wildlife conflict are. And at the end, I'll tell you a bit about what Raj said to me when I said to him, so how do you fix all this? Um, So I don't think we should waste too much time. I think we should just go in straight away and get Raj in and hear what he has to say. Let's hear Raj. (laughs) 
Well, Rajiv, welcome to Into the Wild. Uh, the second time you've been on, but in a very different format because I'm actually interviewing you this time. Um, how are you and how was your day? Uh, thank you, Ran. And uh, it's been a lovely day. Warm for uh, day in November, mm. but all good. Um, so as you know, on today's show, we're talking about human-wildlife conflict in India. Now, I know this is a huge topic. I know you and I have spoken about it um, off, off record before about how... Uh, deep this goes within India, but we're hoping to get a bit of an overview from you today. So before we start talking about the causes and stuff, let's talk about what kind of species India has and what kind of conflicts these cause for both people and wildlife. So are you able to just tell us what the main species we're looking at when we talk about human-wildlife conflict in India and how does this change as we go around the country? The main species that come into conflict with India broadly are the tiger, very mm. charismatic guy. Then we have the leopard, the prince of deception. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he is, actually. <laughs> I'll come to why I call it the prince of deception. Yeah. Then we have the elephant, which is a major killer of human beings. It kills a lot of people, but doesn't eat any. And then we have the crocodile, gore, bison, but not that much, that many people are killed. That's another threat. And then in the state of Gujarat, we have the lion. Yes, the Asiatic lion, yes. The Asiatic lion, the one that is outside of anywhere in between India and Africa. That's the only place we have the lion in Gujarat. So yeah, so these are the animals that come into conflict. Then we have the bears. We have uh, uh, several species of bears that come into conflict uh, for various reasons. So these are the general animals that are existential threats mm. for all of us. I mean, for the rural people. Leopards, tigers, and elephants take prime place. They kill uh, somewhere between uh, 400 and 500 people annually per species. Annually? Per species? Oh, my God. And elephant kills about 600 people annually. Oh, Jesus. That's a big that's a big loss though, Rajiv. Yes, it is. Lions don't kill that many. Mm. We have a few, maybe about uh, maybe in the low fifties uh, or somewhere there. Is that because they're in a national park? No, they aren't in a national park. The the ones that are counted are in the national park. Ones that are not counted are outside. Oh, I thought they were. I thought they were only in the national park. Is there fences in the national park? No fences. They are all open. We don't have fences. We don't have fenced national parks. It's not a Kruger or something like that where we have got a fence around. Right, so they've just roamed out. Okay. Yes, so even our counts, tiger counts for that matter, we have the counts in the National Park mm. and the immediate vicinity of the National Park, but not outside. So probably about 40% of the tigers aren't counted. I mean, 40% more. Right. So if you're talking of about uh, 1,000 tigers, we have not counted another 400. So there's no counting of any of these large kind of predators outside of national parks? There's no census done? It is very difficult to do census in a country like India, rather. The reason is because it's a mosaic. The country is a mosaic of forests and farmlands, villages, everything. Um, it's It just merges one into the other. You know where the national park is or you know where the forest is. But the the boundaries are very, very, they just grade into one another. 
So you you were were talking about these predators. You said the leopard is the prince of deception. Now, you promised me you were going to tell me why. Now, you have to now tell me why. (laughs) Because uh, the leopard wears a vanishing coat, one. A vanishing cream on a vanishing coat, rather. And the other thing is it masks its uh, scent. I don't know if any other predator does that, but the leopard, what it does is it rolls in dung. So it smells like village cattle. So the dogs don't bark uh, when it gets into the village. That's 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 genius from a leopard. <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> really, really fucking smart for a leopard. <laughs> yeah, Prince of Deception, you're right, yeah. Yeah, so, and what happens is most of the time these leopards, they, they make themselves look very small. If you actually see when you go out and see a leopard in the jungle, you think that you're looking at a cat Mm. because they can actually hide behind a leaf. I always tell this, I mean, if Adam and Eve, you know, used uh, fig leaves to cover themselves, the leopard can do it with one fig leaf (laughs) and have room to spare. So so they camouflage on top of the fact that they're masking the rest of things they're giving off, such as smell and stuff. And I'm assuming with the big pads feet, the the noise is very minimum from them as well, walking around the jungle. So I guess they're almost invisible walking around. They are. In fact, if you see any of these leopards or tigers when they're stalking, they seem to uh, float. Mm. They they just glide through. they, they, They don't walk. When they are hunting, it's a totally different thing. And then the head doesn't move, nothing moves. I mean, the body suddenly is like a snake going forward, very stealthy. And uh, they keep themselves very low. And when you watch a leopard or a tiger uh, trying to raise its head, it actually raises its nose and its nose is in line with its eyes kind of a thing. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. So uh, it's something like a croc, you know, I mean, the nose comes out, the eyes come out because it's it's curved, something like this. Mm. So the eyes are here, the nose is here. So you don't see, uh, it doesn't break the silhouette. It yeah. doesn't break the skyline. The silhouette is very, very rounded and it, it just blends into the whole scheme of things. And it all, they always flatten their ears when they do that. So that, uh, you know, nothing's standing out. Mm. See, anything with symmetry, you know that there's an animal there, like two ears, uh, horns or antlers or whatever. So once you break that symmetry, then uh, it's you you don't see it. Is this one of the reasons why you, you said at the very beginning, you, you know, you start with a tiger and then you very quickly follow that with leopard. Is this one of the reasons why, you know, it's quite common to have conflicts with these cats is because they're very easy to st- stumble across for people living rurally it can be, you You will be unaware that these animals are walking around. Yes, because uh, for every tiger sighting that you have, probably the tiger has seen about uh, 100 human beings. Oh, that gives me a shiver down my spine, though. <laughs> that gives, I, <laughs> I love, of course I love big cats, but there's just something about being watched by a big cat when you don't know you're being watched that sends a shiver down my spine. Right. And then if there's, if a tiger or a leopard is staring down at you, you'll actually feel it. Mm. Because I have felt uh, stares. Yeah. Turned around and seen the animals. So, so you felt it before you saw the cat? 
I, I felt the stare, so I turned around and I saw the animal looking very intensely at me. It's happened a couple of times. What did you do? Nothing. Just nothing. <laughs> what do you do? You're not armed. You don't have anything. You don't have weapons. You don't have anything at all. And India, you're in, and in India, you're not allowed to carry weapons into the jungle. So we have no recourse but to stand still and hope for the best. Oh Christ! Okay, well, I mean, that's okay. This is, you know, as as a as an Englishman, I'm I'm never going to know that <laughs> that feeling. I don't think. Um, so, so those are the, so we've got the big cats, and then you said elephants. Now, what kind of conflicts are elephants causing? Because obviously, we, I, I think a lot of people in England, and I'm sure many parts of the Western world, see elephants, whether we're talking about um, Indian elephants or African elephants, as these kind of gentle giants. But when we're talking about human wildlife conflict, obviously, there's a very different picture being painted. So, what, what, are, what are the conflicts being caused by elephants in India? They are giants, all right, but they aren't gentle by any chance. Mm. It's it's a very, uh, you know, they will charge at you at the slightest mm. of provocations. I mean, it's just a disturbance or you know someone walking by or something, and they will come at you. And uh, the main reason why people uh, get into the elephant uh, conflicts, I mean, people die in elephant conflicts, is because they have walked in, and the elephant is a again a is a creature that just disappears into the landscape. As huge as it is, it's very difficult to spot a, an elephant in the cane or cane or uh, bamboo, mm. which uh, where they are, you you will not see even a herd of elephants. So you you need trained eyes to see elephants uh, in that kind of a landscape. Well, I guess they're almost set to they're set to match their surroundings, aren't they? And, and being that size, they can just disappear into the forest just by walking through it, <laughs> I guess, if they're that big. They do. And the other thing is you don't know which is the front end and which is the back end of an elephant. <laughs> Very problematic. <laughs> Very problematic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure which end I'd prefer. I really don't know. <laughs> no, no. So this is another aspect with uh, elephants. Um, it's only when you walk in into the jungles mm. and you see them the way they are. I'm not talking of these jeep and uh, safari vehicles in national parks. Yeah. Talking of when you get into areas where you have estates where elephants are there, uh, come in there, uh, it is then that you realize that, you know, they are such powerful animals and they can just disappear behind a... Uh, uh, a clump of trees. So we're talking about them in the in the jungle, in the forest here. Do elephants, and I guess the same question with leopards and tigers as well, are they moving into populated areas outside of forest boundaries? Are they walking through settlement areas as well? Yes, they do. And with the elephants, what happens is, especially the bull elephants, they prefer to feed in the fields, in the crop fields, mm. because that is where you have the most nutritious of foods growing. All concentrated in one area. They don't have to go walking and trying to hunt for food. So the foraging is done by the cows and the calves and the young bulls, whereas the mature bulls that are that get into must uh, and are breeding bulls rather, they are always feeding in crops because they need that strength, that stamina and everything. And uh, elephant gut is very, very poor uh, in processing food. So 
they need to eat a lot. So yeah. a, a farm is a much better place to get all their requirements. We've we've looked at pre- we've kind of had a look at predators. I think crocodiles. We can safely assume where those conflicts are coming from. <laughs> I think that's a conflict of you know maybe people having to use a, the waterways and stuff like that and and getting caught. It's the, so let's talk about animals that aren't necessarily predating or such as a large land mammal like an elephant, which may not be predating but certainly causing you know life threatening conflicts. Um, what kind of grazing species are we talking about in India that might be causing conflicts with farmers and people that are living rurally as well? We have the wild boar, the uh, nilgai, which is the blue bull. We have all the deer species, the two deer species mainly, but not so much the sambar, but the spotted deer and a lot of black buck. Black buck enter crops, they destroy crops. They are uh, terrible as far as crop destruction goes. So what happens is the government, the forest department and everyone says the cropping pattern should be changed. So what in effect happens is that I'll give you an example for groundnut, uh, which is um, which is loved by wild boar. And wild boar is uh, widespread across the country. So a quintal of your groundnut at farm fetches you about 6,300 rupees, which is about 630 pounds. Okay. Mm-hmm. When they get down to doing uh, other, because of wild boar problem, if they get down to soybean, then their income goes down by 30 to 30-35%. Going down to four four thousand six hundred rupees. Right, right. So they are losing straight away about 35 percent income straight away, and this is uh, if an ac- uh, an acre of land is not uh, spoiled by any of the wild animals. Now, when you have crops, whether you have uh, edible crops or inedible crops, as far as wildlife is concerned, they still will walk through your land. So you still lose about thirty percent. Yeah, yeah. So you lose 30% by way of changing of cultivation. And then you lose on that, you lose another 30%. So for the farmer, it becomes almost unviable. Mm -hmm. So most of the time, what is happening now is that these people are giving away those lands, selling them, and all those lands are getting converted into housing plots. So there's a land use change. So what happens with this land use changes that... um, uh, birds that were uh, birds and animals that uh, lived in that landscape, the the village landscape, the where the farm, the farmland landscape, the egrets, the mm. minas, and all those birds, they have suddenly lost their forage. Right, and, right. And to top it, they have also lost their uh, roosts. Yeah, their breeding grounds. All their uh, nesting and uh, roosting. Trees have gone because the trees are cut down to make way for plots, or small passes of land. So it's a real knock-on effect. Yeah, it is. It has a knockdown effect. And the other thing that happens with all this is that all these animals then come into the cities and towns trying to make do with whatever they have. And then they get killed or something like that happens. So they disperse and then there is a, a drop in the species, the number of species. So we are seeing something like about... Uh, 40-50% drop in species, the wow. number of individuals. So, you know, these are things that we need to address because it's not only human wildlife conflict, it's not only the human beings that are affected, it's also the animals and birds that are getting affected because of it. 
Absolutely. We have to, um, you know, balance it out. It's um, So that is where the problem lies. I wanted to ask you as well, while we're talking about kind of non-predatory or large species, um, I read something recently or a bit of an article, and I wondered if you could give our listeners a bit of an insight to this, about um, the species you mentioned there called the Nilgai which is a grazing species, which has a very large population, if I'm right saying, in India, um, which is kind of, it creates conflict with farmers from grazing and stuff. How is the Nilgai being managed, or are they being managed at all currently with their numbers? Uh, It's only the state of Bihar that is now managing uh, Nilgai. But it's again, kind of not the right way if you want to reduce populations. What the government has said about the Nilgai is, that the animals that are, are to be shot, I mean, you can shoot those nilgai, um, and those animals are shot, but only old bulls should be shot. Mm. Now, the thing everyone knows, any person who's got a little bit of common sense and some, or a little grounding in uh, environment and wildlife conservation, will know that the old bulls don't breed. And in fact, they keep the young bulls from breeding with the females. So. What is happening is you're knocking down the old bulls and the young bulls are breeding. So now we are, earlier we used to see one calf or two calves. Now we are seeing three calves per, so the numbers are going up. And the other thing, the sad part is that these animals are buried. So killed, then just buried? Yeah, they're just killed and buried. Why is that? The government says that you can't eat it. And in India, we, we suffer, especially in the north, Protein deficiency is something like about 73%. Oh, shit. So when you have that kind of protein deficiency, it's it makes more sense to let people eat this meat. Is that because of the the concept of kind of, or the belief, whatever word we're calling it, of using wildlife in that way? Is that is that a thing in India? Yes. Unfortunately, people don't understand the concept of sustainable use in India. Hmm. Because uh, uh, 50 years ago, the Prime Minister then thought it was a good thing to knock off hunting. Altogether. Altogether. And she destroyed the whole uh, system of wildlife management. And Mm. when I say a system of wildlife wildlife management, India is a country where we have castes, different groups of people, tribal and otherwise, who have specific roles. They, They played specific roles. So hereditarily, they have inherited those uh, qualities. Mm. So we had people who used to move blackbuck in herds. We had people who used to hunt and kill and eat monkeys. Mm. We had people who used to do various things. I mean, there were people who used to train cheetahs. Uh, we had people who used to train caracals for hunting. Right. So, so what has happened is these people... One, uh, Mr. Jha has written a book. It's a wonderful book called From Hunters to Ecological Refugees. So that is what has happened. So what we have done is we have destroyed a national asset in management of wildlife. I mean, indigenous management of wildlife. Yeah, it's really been deleted from, I guess, well, I guess from history almost, isn't it? It's been forgotten about. It's just been wiped off the plate, which... Yeah, I guess when we're looking at people that live rurally as well, or people that even like might move around the country, you're not now spreading on that skill set if you're saying, well, that skill set is no longer allowed to happen. Right. So we are losing, we have lost a lot, and we are losing 
much more because uh, when I go into these tribal areas and the rural areas, I find the amount of knowledge that they have is mm. unbelievable. So I'm just wondering what we have lost. If these yeah. guys have got this, the kind of knowledge they have. Um, I was actually talking a couple of years ago, two years ago, I think, the beginning of COVID. And I was talking to some people and the old uh, folk there were saying that they could tell the difference between a tiger and a tiger's roads. Oh. They could differentiate between the male and the female. And they all sound the same to me. Yeah, that's just that, that's that kind of knowledge though. That I just that's connection. Right. <laughs> that's connection. <laughs> so you have this kind of knowledge which is being lost. Mm. And really what should be used to, to kind of restore and you know, not just protect, but uh what's the right word? I don't know. Just well, it's a way to coexist, isn't it? If you have that kind of knowledge, that is coexistence. Yes, because then you know when to go out, where to go out. Mm. You know when it is safe to go out. This is lost. This kind of knowledge is lost. Well, my next question was going to be, like, what do you think the leading causes are for human-wildlife conflicts in India? But I guess you've almost just answered one of it there. Is Do you believe that that loss of inherited knowledge of wildlife is part of the reason why human-wildlife conflict has kind of been such a thing or so prevalent in India? Yes. What has happened is we are now, the main reason for the conflict is these animals that are there mm-hmm. and the loss of revenue. Mm-hmm. There is a socio-economic bias also to it. The people are losing their lands there. So what happens when uh, there's this conflict? People leave the place. Now in Uttarakhand, which is a northern state uh, uh, carved out of Uttar Pradesh in the north. Uh, 700 villages have cleared out because of leopard. 700 villages because of leopards? Yes. Just because it's been too dangerous to live there? Yeah, it's too dangerous to live there. (sighs) Jesus. So what do they do? So they leave the place. So you have that on one end. You have Mm. people give up cultivation what I told you about uh, plotting uh, Mm. and everything for land. Or if they can't sell that land, then it lies barren. Nothing grows there. It's all weed. There's no Mm. forest there. So it's it's of no use to anyone. It's no use to uh, man or beast. So you are losing. uh, On one end, you're doing that. On the other end, you're developing infrastructure into the jungles, which is causing a lot of uh, animals to come out. Other thing is, we don't have laws, actually, to uh, somehow combat uh, conflicts. Interesting. So so tell me more about that. So there's no laws to manage or to... Yeah, like... we don't have hunting. And mm. the thing is, when a person is killed by a tiger or a leopard, yeah. the forest department puts up cages there. Now, I have seen photos and I've seen also leopards sitting like dogs in front of the cage looking into it <laughs> they, they don't go in and i have also seen we were in a uh, in a place where we were trying to track uh, a leopard that was causing uh, havoc and a goat was tied as bait now this leopard didn't go through the door to get the goat mm. but it went on the other side behind where the goat is saved uh, i mean there is another the grill it went mm. to the back of the side where the grill is and it put its cl- uh, its paws in and it actually scratched the thing 
and it kind of scooped the animal and ate it that way. <laughs> They're smart. We've already confirmed that leopards are smart. <laughs> very smart. You see, the thing is, it's very difficult to get a leopard. So these are the challenges that everyone faces. Everyone knows about it. But we have the animal rights and all that. So what happens is they put a lot of pressure on the government and then the government doesn't want to take the kind of action that should be taken. Mm. So this is very much, so, so it's kind of a cocktail of things. You've kind of got people having to move around or move into newer places into the forest even more to resettle maybe, you know, if areas are too dangerous. You've got the fact that people can't carry arms to protect themselves. People can't take out problem animals. If there are problem animals on repeat basis, you, you can't manage that. And there's no system in place to properly manage the conflict. So a, a, a mixture of all those three things is creating quite a dangerous environment to live in, in some cases. It does. So what are, the other thing that happens is that um, if someone goes into the jungles mm. to lop some fodder for cattle, that is immediately seized and penalized. So uh, on one hand, people are losing lives and livelihoods, loved ones and everything. And then mm. on the other hand, you're being penalized for taking some fodder. So people are now, they hate wildlife. The custodians of wildlife hate wildlife. Right, because they're not seen as a priority. No, it is not a priority anymore. Mm. Just yesterday, I was watching a, a, a video where a whole couple of villages, they had a blo blockade on the National Highway. Then they went uh, to the Division Forest Officer's office and gave a representation. Now, this is a very, very sane group of people. I've also seen where they've been tied up and beaten up, the forest staff. Wow. And their, um, uh, what do you call, their vehicles torched and everything. So these are the extreme uh, things that are happening. Mm -hmm. And again, coming back to Uttarakhand, uh, someone sent me a, a video uh, which he took um, of, uh, uh, you know, Uttarakhand is so many things. Uh, Uttarakhand's teacher is this, the best tree is uh, something and everything. And the state enemy is the wild boar. Right. So this is the kind of hate people have towards wildlife. Mm -hmm. When we talk of coexistence, we the simple thing is that, you know, what is thrown at people? The yeah. simplest thing is thrown at the rural people. They have said that they have been told that they should live with these wild animals. Come what may. But yeah. as soon as a leopard enters an urban area, that animal is taken out. It is shot or it is caught and it is or tranquilized or something or the other happens to it. So, so as long as so is, if it's not in the forest? Yeah, if it is. No, it in both the cases, it's not in the forest. Neither is it uh, in the forest when it is uh, in the village, nor is it in the forest when it is in the uh, urban area. But when it is in the urban areas, the animal is taken out immediately. So why is that? Why 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 does it happen immediately there? Because uh, the uh, urban folk don't don't have a con the concept of coexistence. Right. Okay. Okay. So so when we're looking at urban areas, there's a, there's a there's a more direct kind of retaliation straight away. Get rid of it. But the people who live in more rurally in the villages. I don't I don't know the right words are, Raj, but more happy to coexist, more happy to put up with wildlife? <laughs> I've been forced to 
Forced to. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair point. They've been forced to. <laughs> They're forced to coexist because there's no other choice for them. But mm. when it comes into the uh, into an urban area, then people make a lot of noise and all that. I know, uh, when was it? About a year, year and a half ago, a leopard was seen in Noida, that is outside of Delhi, the capital. It was in the basement of an apartment complex. Oh, God. And, and people actually evacuated their homes, their apartments. They evacuated. They went away to their relatives' places. And the others were saying that, you know, they don't have anywhere to go. They were complaining. There, there was so much of a hue and a cry. And then the leopard left. <laughs> the leopard evacuated as well. <laughs> so they were like, yeah, fair point. I'm out. <laughs> that's, that's amazing, though. That's, that's interesting. Is, is this a style? And I don't want to, like, put words in your mouth with this. But is this kind of a hang-up of fortress-style conservation in the country? It is fortress conservation. Mm. There's nothing but fortress conservation when you don't allow uh, people to utilize what is rightfully theirs. Mm. And um, in the past 50 years, I mean, till about 50, 70 years, there was wholesale killing of wild animals. But once a value was added to them, the study done by those two guys in uh, Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, their landmark studies showed that wildlife could coexist with cattle and wildlife ranching started there. Ian Clare is another man who bought in a lot of good for wildlife in uh, Africa, South Africa mainly, where he started with Infolozi National Park. I'm just going back to Africa because we could have done the same thing here. We have done a very good job of saving our animals. It's not that we have lost anything. But now we are at a cusp where people don't like animals and they will do anything to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no, that, like you said, there's no that, that coexistence, that kind of, that you've lost that inherited connection in some places. So therefore, there is no recognizable need for wildlife. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, in India, the Hindu religion is a very, very strong binding force for wildlife. Uh, every animal is either a vehicle of a god or goddess, or it is an incarnation of something. So Ganesh is the elephant-headed god, and uh, the rat is his transport, is his vehicle. Mm. So these kinds of things. So you have the peafowl, and peafowl is the transport of another god. So, you know, there was this connect. Now with globalization and people going abroad and coming back in and you know, all that happening, this is waning. This is going off. And with that, what's happening is people want a better quality of life. Everyone mm. does. So they want the animals out. Yeah, of course. The easiest way is to poison. And you have all kinds of animals now coming into conflict because of that. So with this globalization, people are becoming more and more materialistic. Mm -hmm. People are uh, traveling. So they are seeing what's happening around the world. So there is a definite disconnect between the older generations and the present uh, generations. Because you have the grandparents, you've got two or three generations and two or three generations coming up. Mm -hmm. So the younger the generation, the more disconnected they are with wildlife. 
mainly because we also don't allow people to go into the jungles. Like my parents used to take us out into the jungle for at the drop of a hat. Mm. And we used to drive into a jungle. So I do that even today. But I don't see too many people doing that. Yeah, right. So they're not experiencing that kind of... Exactly. And they don't like to go birding, the bird watching or, you know, to see something or just, just go out and relax in the jungle. And I think that's it, isn't it? When we talk about value on wildlife, we often think about a financial value, but there's also that kind of that connection value, that cultural value. If you lose that as well, then people aren't going to want it even more so. <laughs> so it will start to disappear. To kind of close this off, and this is a big question for you, what would you say is the best way to lower human wildlife conflict in India? I would argue that you use the animals. So when you start using the resource, then you'll automatically improve the habitat and you'll also improve the diversity of that area. And it's a renewable resource. Uh, wildlife is not a non-renewable resource. It's not like coal and uh, fossil fuel. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. That. I don't like this word coexistence because who defines coexistence and for whom? Mm. You are not going to live in the jungle. I'll tell you, you'll run away from it in two days. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, honestly, I mean, um, I uh, I have spent days alone in the jungle, all all alone, all by myself. And I know what it is. I spent up to about five days in the jungle. So I know what it is to be in a forest without weapons, without anything. So, you know, coexistence is a very, very difficult task. And day before yesterday, I was in a jungle. And uh, while we were sitting and having a barbecue where the place where we had this leopard about 100 yards from us, mm. a man was walking by and seeing us, he came up to just greet us. And he didn't have a torch or he didn't have any light with him. And it was quite dark. It was about 8 o'clock in the evening here. Very dark. It's all hills. So again, the deep shadows. In that, that man was walking on that foot, foot track all alone. So we gave him a torch and uh, said that, you know, he can give it back to us whenever he comes to this side of town. And he was very happy because he had to do another five kilometers through the jungle. So, you know, pe people walk in that. So when you talk of coexistence, yes, there is coexistence with the rural people. They're, they're not at war with any of the animals. But it would be better if we could make their lives a little more comfortable for them. Mm. I'm not saying that we should shoot every tiger and every leopard and every whatever that creeps, crawls or runs, but make it a little more human friendly so that they don't have to run this gauntlet. Well, Raj, thank you so much for everything you've told us about India. There's a lot to take in with your mixture of species and the reasons for the many conflicts. And like you said, even just trying to define the word coexistence is not an easy thing to do. Um, but we appreciate you coming on to share us some of your very wise words and lots of knowledge. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, and Thank you so very much. So there we go. Big thanks to uh, Rajiv there for coming on the show. And I will say he... He's become a good friend of mine. We talk a lot on WhatsApp. And you know on WhatsApp, you can do like the little stories. Yes. In your profile. Discovered, discovered so that this year. I, I don't, not many people do them, but Rajiv does these. And I hope he's listening to this now because <laughs> I watch his. And some of the videos he puts in his, I, I'm not prepared for. 
Oh no. So they're not gra- they're not gruesome graphic. There's no conflicts like that, but he will today I about half an hour before you and I jumped on the call, Nadia. He shared um, I don't know the region, I don't know where in India this was, but it was a video of a camera phone filming a man yelling to his friend I assume warning them because a leopard was stalking them from behind. Oh my god. And then god. this man had to run over and was just screaming at the leopard and the leopard was just stood there and then just walked away and I just had the my hairs on my neck went up <laughs> and I was just like this is insane how close and how how much space people share yeah. and live side on side with such large wildlife um so a, a big thanks to Raj for coming on the show but also a big thanks to Raj for like putting that content out to I guess his friends that are lucky enough to talk to him on whatsapp um oh god it just blows really... my mind like we yeah, do not have any concept of what it is to be out in that kind of danger yeah, I, I, exactly, and that is that is really where the issues have come in places like India as well with colonial mm. rule. We we in England um, learnt to eradicate most of our I'm going to say problems with quotations as we saw it back then are yeah. big wildlife that cause these issues. So when colonialism came along, a lot of you listening will, will probably already be aware of this. We went to other countries and went, well, you don't live with these species. Eradicate, eradicate, and that's how it happened. You know, push people out. You don't share the space with these. We're separate, and that's that's all how it it's happened. It's civilization, right? To be civilized. It, exactly, and yeah. it's there is still, as Roger said, there's a huge hangover of this in India with fortress conservation and people losing that kind of connection to be to be able to be close to wildlife. Um, yeah. He said to me. He did say, you know, he remembers being able to go into the forest with his mum and dad when he was young. He said, but people don't do that anymore. You know, they don't go into the rainforest as much. So we're losing that kind of learnt behaviour or that passed down behaviour of how to be in nature and stuff. Um, but it's, it, I think there's a lot, I mean, probably because of an English rule, but I, I see a lot of similarities when I talk to Raj and hearing him there, apart from species, but the attitudes towards nature from England and India. I mm-hmm. think there's still some similarities there. And I think it's it's that judgment on but what we see all the time is that people living rurally, it's almost like they choose to live there. Well, if that's where you want to live, you have to put up with living with large wildlife and you should know how to do that. But there's been so many issues in between. Yeah. And the fact that they're not even allowed to defend themselves or carry rifles or, you know, it, or in any way, you're not allowed to kill the wildlife um, to, to even protect yourself. I think it's got so much hangups in it and... Yeah, it's, it's but there's so much here. Like I yeah, don't even so know what I don't even know where yeah. to begin. I mean, first of all, it's important to begin by saying India is a, a vast country. Yeah. We're hearing from one man in a short amount of time, and also Raj is absolutely brilliant, but I can just imagine that there are differences in different regions. We're talking as broadly as we can for the benefit of the episode yeah. about a broad system. But yeah, no, absolutely. When you separate communities from the land in that kind of subsistence living where where land and culture and family and community is intertwined deeply when you disrupt that Mm. you get all kinds of different disruptions and that's like cultural and community disruptions but also absolutely our knowledge of wild spaces our ability to intuit and learn from our ancestors about how to I guess live within the environment that we've we've grown up in and obviously it's quite clear here that the different levels of disruption when you have got one power and rule telling community you know how many people in india how many oh uh, a billion a billion over a billion yeah you try mm. to tell a billion people a one way of being in a complex ecosystem across a huge country with within it 
hundreds well, of languages, live, hundreds of cultures, exactly, yeah, hundreds of habitats. Everywhere. Hun- yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So, like, it's just, yeah, let, so, so first of all, you know, that's not going to work. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, human-wildlife conflict, I and mean, we've spoken about this before, Ryan, that, like, it's really, really interesting from, like, an anthropological point of view mm. and trying to, like, understand it from, like, a nature conservation point of view. It's just these things are one and the same. We try and, like, separate them out. Yeah. It's, it is all one of the same issue, I suppose. And I asked Raj as well off, uh, after our call, I said to him, what, what do you think is the best way for a country like India to start to really tackle human-wildlife conflict? And he, he, he said very honestly, he thinks that Indian laws should start to align with different global organisations such as the IBES, which is the Intergovernmental Science and Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, on the CBD, so the Convention of Biological Diversity, and the Sustainable Development Goals as well. So, oh, so you know, they, these are are they not signed up? Are India not signed up to those? So I think you can be signed up, but whether you change your laws to align with so them, then you have to ratify it into your law. Yeah, exactly. So which India are not doing stuff like this. So it was very interesting. And I said to him after doing a bit of research just online, kind of going, you know, before I spoke to him, I said a lot of the stuff I was reading online is is saying that it's encroachment into habitat which is causing this. And he said to me. He said, this is what you'll read a lot. And I'll actually read the reply he sent to me uh, because I spoke about a fear of loss. um, And he said, what you said about the fear of loss subconsciously drives this line of thought. He said, plus we have a huge fortress conservation policy that is practiced here. He said, those who write such articles are guilty of wild area encroachment as much as any farmer in India. The farmer's environment damage footprint is however much smaller than someone living um, more urban. Um... And he said it's always wise to kind of take with a pinch of salt who is writing these articles um, if it's not coming from the voice of the person that's living with the wildlife, which I thought was a a really important point when we're doing our research, when we're talking about topics like this. It's very easy to say people are encroaching in habitat. It's like, but why are they doing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People don't choose. People don't want to, you know, people settle. They don't choose to constantly move around and like encroach further and further in. People build small communities and live. So... There's a reason why that's happening. Um, I yeah, think. 100%. And obviously, like, for, for listeners, you know, if you are hearing a story, I think we have just, sometimes we have lose the ability to, for that, like, critical thinking, whenever we're absorbing mm. any information about wildlife and conservation and also the news at large, the ability yeah. to stop and give personal critique, who is telling this story, what their interests might be, is the story making a judgment about things that are happening to the most oppressed and is it the most depressed telling that story? Well, if it's not, if, it, if it's not villagers or people or, you know, then I don't know, why are you telling that story? What are your interests? Exactly. But I mean, as with as with so much of this stuff, like obviously I get, you know, the the CBD and all of these international conventions for protecting wildlife do come from a Western lens of nature conservation, mm-hmm. such as the 30 by 30 habitat and I guess protected land and sea goals that have largely been signed up by you know, most countries or a lot of countries. So much of this is taking it from the opposite side. It's about we're trying to protect nature rather than going, what what is driving the encroachment in the first place? What is driving the habitat loss? What are driving more of these interactions? Yes, cultural knowledge loss. Why has the cultural knowledge been lost? Because people have been separated from communities. So like, I think it's really important to hold both the things. We, we do have to now employ an amount of nature protection and conservation. Obviously, India are doing it 
on a large scale with barrier conservation. They can also celebrate um, the OECM category. So there are protected areas, designated areas. If you look at the ICN protected areas categories, there's like five of them. I think there's like they added a six, which is OECM. Um, It's other effective area-based conservation methods. This is a special kind of designated that countries are allowed to say we have 400 kilometres of OECM here. That's when it's not necessarily a nature reserve or protected for nature, but actually we recognise that it um, is being really effective for wildlife, even though that that's not what it's for. We have a really weird example in the UK that might be an OECM, which is a World War II or a World War I ship that was sunk. Um, oh. And it's protected for historical reasons. But because of that, na- marine wildlife has really thrived Just around it. it. So, <laughs> so potentially one OECM that we've got in the country. Another example might be, just to make it relevant for UK listeners, Ministry of Defence Land you can't go on it because it's Ministry of Defence, but actually they can be really good havens for wildlife. So potentially could be this classification. Mm. So India can boast some of those. But I guess nobody's surprised that I've got deep concerns or criticisms about designating land just for nature, mm-hmm. particularly when humans have played an important part as ecosystem creators for millennia. It's only in the past two or three hundred years. We've, I mean, particularly the last hundred years, we've fucked it up. And we fucked it up because of overconsumption, capitalization, and, and global oppression. So, like, I feel like can we just reverse that? I know that's not what we're talking about, but I think like I always have to say it. <laughs> I think uh, yeah, but I think it it does co it it does interlink with this stuff. And I think Raj again said this to me off record as well. Is one of the reasons why a lot of people are disconnected in a country like India is because a lot of people in India are starting to get into work that is disconnected from nature, which is absolutely a capitalist way of work. Yeah, so yeah. I think it does play that part in when we're looking at human wildlife conflict, how to not behave in nature, but how to be in nature, how to be nature. And that um that kind of I, I I'm wary of the word coexistence now because Raj actually picked me up on it and saying when we when we use the word coexisting with wildlife, he said, Who who are we talking about coexisting with wildlife? What yeah, is yeah. coexisting with wildlife? So he actually picked me up on that. So I'm wary of that word. I will say as well to listeners, like obviously this is a big topic, as Nadia said, we try and compact it and we're talking very broadly about a country here. If you have the opportunity just to sit in Google and just and, and I know it's a bit there's not much graphic stuff out there, I will be honest, but there's stories out there to learn about what people are actually dealing with when we talk about conflicts in India. Be brave enough to search this stuff because yeah, yeah. it's not going to just appear in front of you. Talk, like Google humans killed by tigers in India in 22 to 23. Start Googling that. Um, elephant conflicts as well. It's about 600 people a year. It's We're not talking, it's not small wow. amounts. So, and that's just like one species we're talking about, right? We've that's got, one we're species. not talking about, we're not talking like snakes. We haven't talked about sun bears. We haven't spoken about uh, gorillas, the, the crocodiles. We have all these animals that cause conflict. So do put yourself out there and just do it half an hour of just learning about it. Because in, unless we know about these stories, you, you know, the media aren't putting them in front of us. And it's a very real problem. It's one of the biggest reasons why, well, loss of human life and also loss of um, wild animal life as well. And I will say there's an amazing few chapters of this in the book, The Deadly Balance by Professor Adam Hart, who focuses on some species in India that are really worth a read. Uh, I highly recommend that as well. So those are my, if you want to learn a bit more about this, then those are my two research points, I'll say. Um, but thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. We're going to do a few more of these. I wonder what yeah, country we'll go let's to next. Keep, let, mm, let me just spin the globe. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? If that's how we did it. Can you imagine? If we just... We can budget for one of them. Someone, we can someone donate some money. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how we're doing our Kofi advert? Basically, someone donate some money. Um, 
Thank you very much for tuning in to another episode, nerds. A uh, reminder, if you enjoy the show, I hope you do, uh, please review it on whatever platform you listen. It really does help um, the show. And if you can, I know it's trying times for everyone at the moment, but if you can spare a couple of quid... Just do it now. Throw it, do it now. Do it right now. Uh, visit ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. Everything that we get goes back into the show and really helps us continue produce shows for your ears. Um, until next time, it's bye from me. And it's a lovely goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning into the show, nerds. If you don't already, make sure to follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and at Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you're able to and would like to, you can support the show by tipping us at coffee.com forward slash Into the Wild Pod. That buys us the equivalent of a coffee and we use it to fund more podcasts for your ears. But until next time, keep well and live the good life.